pray. Uh, the word that came to me as we were just singing that last part was um, how Paul chooses to end the gospel message in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the beauty of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, he says, and who has been his counselor? And who has given anything to him that wasn't first his? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Oh God, to you be the glory forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the word of God. Romans 2, 1 through 16. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice, practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who, will, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Grab your Bibles and find Romans. We are in this series in, the, um, in, in Romans that we're calling Righteousness Revealed in the Gospel of Romans, the, the euangelion of Romans. We're talking about how this is Paul's way of, um, of explaining God's plan of salvation. And the reason we called it Righteousness Revealed is we talked about how it is God's um, apocalypse, his revelation, his unveiling of his plan. And Paul's giving it to us in great detail. And the reason we talked, we use the word righteousness in there in, in the title for the series is because it 
Paul uses it throughout the book. In fact, if you had to summarize the book of Romans in one thought, it would be God's own defense of his own righteousness. The book of Romans is God's defense of his righteousness. And it can actually be summarized in five therefore statements. So I want you to open up to Romans, and I just want to look at, before we jump into today's message, this is the message of Romans in five verses. And so if you look at, we're going to start in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 24. This is where we were, um, I think, a couple weeks ago, and then again last week as well. But it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now look at today's, the start of today's passage, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you who judge practice the very same things. Now jump to chapter 5 and verse 1. So he's starting out, Paul spends like the first three and a half chapters sharing the problem, and then when he gets to chapter 4 and then really into chapter 5, he starts sharing the good news. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore. So in light of all that bad news, when we get there here in a, in a couple of months, Lord willing, or weeks, whatever it is, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have been reconciled with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn to verse, or chapter 8, verse 1. Since that is true... Since we now have peace with God, and that is true, there is therefore, or if you have an NASB or a New King James, it actually says, therefore there is, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's pretty good news. And then the last therefore that explains the whole thing is, therefore, since that's true, Since Jesus has taken the punishment and reconciled you, how should we live? So Paul finishes the book, the last few chapters of the the book of Romans, starting in in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, or again, the NASB actually puts the therefore first, because in Greek, the word order is not exactly um, the same word for word from Greek to English by any stretch of the imagination. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right, so here are these five therefores that Paul is, gonna, is talking about. Ultimately, it is God's defense of his own righteousness. That's what this letter is about. In chapter one, he talked about, and we, and we spent three weeks in chapter one. We're getting to chapter two today. Woohoo! In chapter one, he talked about, hey, there's this thing, it's called sin, and the world is guilty of it. In chapter two, he's gonna talk, he's gonna start the conversation of, since that's true, what does God have to do about it? Then in chapter three, he's going to drive the point home. He spends three chapters. It's almost like at this point, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I, if you're sitting here today already going, hey, I kind of get this whole thing that the world is bad and like there's less, could we just get to the good part? I, I'm right there with you, honestly. Like I'm like, Paul, couldn't you have, couldn't you have just like, like done a, a, maybe a couple of paragraphs on this and then we just jump to grace? 
But there's purpose in how he does it, obviously, because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, he's saying, okay, here's, chapter 3 is, here's who it's going to be done to. Like, here's what sin is, chapter 1. Here's what must be done about it, because God, of God, who God is. Here's who it's going to be done to. And then he starts to turn the corner in, chapter, in chapters 4 and on, and starts to talk about, but here is how the gospel fixes it and transforms our life. Guys, here's the reality. God must judge, right? He must judge. But here's the thing. We all want him to. We do. The problem is we all want to be the one who tells him what's judgeworthy and what's not, right? Like we want God to, guys, think about this. There was a lot of right a lot of good prayer, a lot of right prayer about things like nine officers being shot. Let's say, let's say, and I, and, I, and I don't even know the whole story, but let's say the man was still alive who shot them. Let's say he went to the judge and the judge was like, you know what? He just had a bad day. I'm going to let him go. We would rightfully lose our minds, right? Because there is justice. The, but we look and go, yeah, but that's obvious, what Paul is going to show us, showed us last week, is going to show us this. We're going to drive the point home the next two weeks after that in Romans chapter 3. Is that, guys, our problem is we want to tell God what's judgeworthy or not. So the first talking points question on the back of your, on the back of your worksheet there, um, where you're taking notes and, and writing down things, the first talking points question says this. What kinds of things is it right to judge? What kinds of things is it unfair to judge? And then the parentheses there is, is pretty important. How do we determine what goes in which category? So I'm just going to ask really quick, like what, so what things are right, what things are wrong? Let's, let's not maybe spend a lot of time on that because I want to spend some time on the second talking points question. But let's, how do we determine what is judge worthy and what's not? It says we have a propensity to judge. Okay, Scott's holding up his Bible. The Bible, Right? That's, that's pretty much it. So how does it, how does it, but guys, here's even where that seems black and white, like the Bible, I mean, it's black and white, right, writing. But, but guys, here's the thing. It's not what we want the Bible, what we want the Bible to say. It's not what we make the Bible say by picking and plucking verses out to make our judgmental point. It's about what does the gospel say? And that's why today what we're talking about is we got to back up a step from from our propensity to judge, because this passage looks like that's what Paul's talking about. It's our propensity to judge one another. Ultimately, if we look at the last verse of each of our three sections we're going to talk about today, this chapter is about God's righteous judgment. It's about God having the right to judge. In fact, if you would, I wasn't going to have you, but let's start. So, so we're, we're in chapter 2. I just want to show you where we're going to end. Look at verse 16. Of chapter two. That's what I know. The reading today said twenty-four. My fault. Um, while I was studying this week, I um, just felt like no, that's just going too far. We're gonna um, we're gonna go to verse sixteen. The Holy Spirit just kind of connected those these dots to me. But look at verse sixteen of chapter two of Romans. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. That's the ultimate. Because God's judging. God's judging how? How does he have the right to judge? Well, he is God, and he is the only one who really knows the hearts of men. That's our big struggle in judging. We don't have any way of really knowing the hearts of men. 
So we have these conflicts of like, okay, but, but, but Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Probably the most misquoted verse in the New Testament out of everything Jesus said. I don't have time to go into all the details of it, but about why it's misquoted. Because he also, right after that, talks about judging people by their fruit. But, but I do want to point out, Luke takes that sort of negative connotation of don't judge and what judge. And, and, he, and he puts the, not just a positive on it, but here's, here's the reason when we judge, we need to use the Bible as our, as our instrument, and we need to use grace as our means. So in Luke chapter 6, he says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Same thing Matthew says. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and, 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 Paul, and Matthew's, um, Matthew's recount of this scene also talks, it's the very next thing Paul to, or Jesus talks about is forgiveness, but, he's, but Luke just puts it very succinctly. Forgive and it will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good, now I love this part. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, run over. He's saying like, as much as you can cram into your judgment cup, into your measuring cup, whether it's for good or for bad, he's saying running over will, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. For with the measure we, guys, if you get nothing else out of today, understand two things. One, God has a right to judge. And we're going to see that today. And two, how we judge each other and the world is exactly how God will judge us in eternity. Not under salvation, but under reward. And we're going to see that in our passage today too. So the question is, why does a loving God judge? We hear that a lot. Right? You hear that a lot in society. Wait a minute. If your God is so loving, why does he judge people? Paul's going to tell us, not just today, but throughout this letter, why that has to be true. And it's so hard for me because I, I so want to go, okay, now let's turn back. Let's turn to Romans 8 where he keeps this argument going. And let's turn to Romans 9 where this argument gets laid out in more detail. And I have to remind myself, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. So today we're going to just keep our nose in chapter 2 and plug along. But ultimately, why does God have to judge? Because we are hard-hearted rebels, because we're glory thieves, and because he's the one who knows the hidden intention of our heart. So, so let's look at our, the first part. And guys, again, I understand. It's another Sunday about like judgment and sin. And guys, understand, Paul is going to... that the passage I prayed at the beginning of, of the beginning of our time before David read the, the, the mess. That's the end of like of Paul's um, Romans 11, the end of Romans 11. That's sort of the, the culmination of Paul's um, laying out the gospel. And then he turns to Romans 12 of the, okay, now how should you live? Guys, he, from, he's building this massive skyscraper, Paul is, of the gospel. And he knows that in order for that thing to not come toppling down when I get to chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, I have to build a really strong foundation. And the foundation for the gospel is the need for it. And we can't ever lose sight of that. We, can't, we don't want to constantly focus on the negative. And I, and I, and I yeah, we, we just don't want to do that. But at the same time, we don't want to skip the reality and so Paul is like building this strong foundation and he's saying, okay, so here's, because sin happens, chapter one, here's what God has to do, chapter two, and he's starting with this first thing, because we are all so hard-hearted. Look at this, here's our, 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 one of those therefores, therefore, because sin exists, because, all the, because everybody's a sinner, you have no excuse, oh man, 
Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. He's saying, all that stuff I just shared with you in chapter one, you're guilty of. You're like, no, I'm not. I didn't murder anybody except that what did Jesus say? When you're angry with somebody, you have what? Murdered them. I don't commit adultery. What did Jesus say, gentlemen? When you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. He's saying, guys, stop, like, yeah, just, you all, you're all guilty of it. He, but, but guys, here's who Paul is talking to. You and me. He's talking to the moralist. See, in chapter one, he was sort of talking to the world. The world, man, it's just a train wreck, right? Now he's turning to the Jewish people and the converted Jews. And so think of it, in our vernacular, it would be this. Church-going people. People that, man, they show up to church every Sunday, but they're not born again. They have all the right answers. They know all the right things. It's made no transformational difference in their life. Nicodemus would be a great example of that. Why do you think Jesus picks him to go, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You know all the right answers, O teacher of Israel. So that's who Paul is addressing here. He's addressing us. These, you know, I'm sitting in church. I'm doing great. Guys, listen up. This isn't for those people. This is for us. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. All the things back in chapter one. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you are going to escape the judgment of God? He's like, if, you're, if, you're, if you think you're getting to heaven because of your righteousness, you are sadly mistaken and will be eternally disappointed. And then he goes on to say, or do you presume on the riches and his on on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience and his patience, not knowing that the, that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? That word presume there would mean could mean a couple of things. It could mean do you hold so lightly the goodness of God? It could also mean do you hold with great contempt? In other words, man, how dare God give those people grace? That's what the Jewish people were thinking. The church can get there too pretty rapidly. And then he goes on and says, but don't you see that it is, inten- it is meant to, it is intended to lead to repentance? But because you are hard and impenitent, because of your hard and impenitent heart, impenitent just means stubborn or unrepentant, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Guys, Understand, I want, I want to talk about verse 5 for just a minute. So when he talks about the day of wrath, that's, that's often the way the Bible talks about the great day of the Lord. Prophets like Zephaniah, prophets like Malachi, talk about the great day of the Lord. It is the consummation of the gospel message. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about how, our, how about the gospel has already been inaugurated. It's been started in Jesus' first coming. It will be fully consummated at his second. That second coming is the great day of the Lord. And Joel puts it this way. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now awesome does not mean like awesome. It means like oh. Right? He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved 
And, and, and Paul's going to reference that. He's going to pull that forward in, in Romans chapter 10. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. He's saying, guys, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the call of God. It's how Jesus started his public ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The day has... The day has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That's how he started his public ministry. That's what Paul is telling, he's saying, guys, the great day of the Lord is coming, and because of our hard hearts, the wrath of God is coming. And it's because we presume on his kindness and his forbearance. Guys, when we consider how amazingly gracious God is to us, in light of how undeserving we are, every one of us, that should do a couple of things. One, it should drop us to our knees. And the second thing is it should make us very, very gracious towards other people. Right? Because he is forbearing with us. He is, that word actually means tolerant. I know that word, we don't like that word much in the church anymore, tolerance. Except that here we really like it. Because God is tolerant towards us. Because he ought to squash us like a bug. Right? And he doesn't. Look at your second talking points question. It says, why is it easier to see the sins of others than to notice our own? I'm asking. Why is it easier? I was going to have you turn to your neighbors and stuff, but we're not going to. We'll just keep this a group think. Why is it easier to recognize the sins of other people than our own? Because this is the tension Paul is talking about in this chapter. We don't look at ourselves. We don't look at ourselves. We, man, we love to be self-ignorant. Good. We want to think we're I'm sorry, what? We want to think we're better than others. We want to think we're better. We are all at some level in our heart of hearts moralists. We all measure ourselves compared to other people. And as long as we can find somebody worse than us in our mind, then we're doing pretty good. Scott. We're hurt by it. What do you mean? Good. Yeah, that, that, I mean, there, there, there is real sin in the world. There is real, like, wronging to one another. And, and that's hard, right? It's hard to forgive when you've been wronged. I mean, that, that is one of my big struggles in life for little and big things. What else? I heard a few people... You spot it, you got it. That's a big one, right? Especially if you, yeah, like the things that most frustrate you about the sins of other people are honestly things that you either know about yourself or subconsciously know about yourself and don't like. Good, one other. Pride. That's, a, that's like, honestly, we just think we're better. And that's really where Paul is gonna take it next. Look at what he says. Or, and so our next thing is, so why does God judge? One, we're hard-hearted. Second, we're glory thieves, we are just glory thieves. Like from, and, we've, and we talk about this a lot at Crossman. From, from the garden, literally from Genesis chapter 3, what they were pursuing was God's glory. God had already given them his glory. They were made in the image of God. And, he, and yet they wanted more glory for themselves. And we are all that way. Look at what he says. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who... By patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will be for there will be wrath and fury. And we'll come back to that in a minute. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The first, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I've mentioned, that's his way of saying to every person. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Guys, it seems, it seems like there's a lot of doing talk there, doesn't it? Like, he's talking about, like, those who, he's going to render to those according to his works. Well, right there in chapter, in verse 6. Well, one, guys, there are degrees of reward in heaven, and there are degrees of punishment in hell. I don't know how all that works. I don't even know why we'll care. I just know we will, and it is true. I don't have time to talk about it today, but it is the truth. Jesus taught it. Paul talks about it, but here is, so you're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this week in your daily readings that we will all appear before the Bema seat of Christ. We, guys, under, get this, write this down. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Underline it, capitalize it, circle it. We are judged by works. We don't talk about that a lot in the church because that sounds like works-based salvation. It's not. We are saved by What? Grace. Grace is, is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's the unmerited favor of God apart from your works. That's clear in scripture. So Paul can't be saying that here. But he's saying, it's, it's almost like, but wait a minute, they're going to be, according to their works, they're going to be rewarded and what they do. And even our reading today was talking about, in, in, um, that RJ read, the Revelation reading, um, was talking about like rewarding you for staying steadfast in the word. Wait a minute, what is, guys, that is not reward for salvation. That is, that is, that is reward based on God's judgment of what you've done for his kingdom. He's talking about kingdom living. How do we know Paul isn't talking about, does not believe in salvation by works? Because this is a big argument about the new perspective on Paul. Part of why people don't want to go to the book of Romans, I mean, ultimately it's because the enemy doesn't want them seeing the beautiful truth that's here, but, but it's because they, they believe that Paul was works-based. And Jesus just never taught on that. Well, first of all, they've never read Jesus. Second of all, if they believe that. Second of all, that's not what Paul's saying. How do we know that's not what Paul's saying? Like, literally turn the page. Like, all you have to do, I mean, this is why, guys, tr remember we're talking training people to teach God's truth? Right? That's what, that's what we're, the, today we're here to be trained. All of us. Me too. Context is king. Why is this verse in this passage? Why is this passage in this chapter? Why is this chapter in this book? Why is this book in the Bible? Well, ultimately, we look at this. If we just pluck this passage out and go, see, right here it says that this is, you got, you got to do good stuff to be saved. Except that the very next page in my Bible, anyway, why is this paragraph in this book, right? Okay, so let me look at the next few paragraphs. Chapter 3, verse 10. It is written, there is none who is, we're going to get here next, next week, Lord willing. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. I'm in chapter, 11, or chapter 3, verse 11. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Pretty clear that what we do does not save us. So let's, so let's just end that argument. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking, one, about this idea of reward, that you're going to be judged based on reward or by what you do, or because you've rejected the work of God. 
Remember in, in John chapter 6, Jesus says this, when, when they say, so what must we do to do your good works? And he says, this is the work of God, that you would believe in me. Right? That's, that's, that's the first start of it. And from there on, you either, you either are going this direction because you've rejected that, and you're working your way into greater damnation. Or you have accepted that truth by the grace of God, and you are now working your way to greater reward in heaven. As an overflow of that grace, not to earn it. And that's ultimately what he's talking about here. Look at, look at verse 7. He says, To those who by, patient, who, who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So those who persevere in, in doing good, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Guys, understand, back to the, why does God judge? Because he has to. Because we want a God who judges right and wrong. Just like we want human judges who judge right and wrong. He has to make things right, and we want him to. We just, but guys, so here's what we say. Well, well, well e- you only have two choices. You either say that God should just let everybody in. God, you know, God is not a God of judgment, which means we let everybody in, which includes people like, I don't know what the heck just happened there, who, who, which includes people like who? Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler, and you, when we look and we go, yeah, but 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 I mean, those are the, those are the go like, like Hitler's the go-to guy for obvious reasons. Well, th- if we say that we let everybody into heaven, then Hitler's in heaven, and there's no way he could be in heaven, right? Because of all what he did. Okay, so here's the here's the, here's the wrong thinking in that. Again, there are degrees of punishment. I'm not saying that you're sitting here today as a sinner saved by grace. And that your level of sin is the same level of sin as Hitler's. I am saying that it's way more similar than you and I think it is. Here's, here's an example to help you see that. So Sean is an airline pilot, right? So he flies. If, if I say to Sean, if I, had, if I had a person that was six feet tall and a person that was 60 feet tall somehow, and I said, Sean, which one's 60 feet tall? Would Sean sitting here have a hard time telling me the answer to that? No. Put him at 33,000 feet, looking out of his cockpit window, down at the ground, and I said, hey, Sean, can you tell me which of these two dudes is 60 feet tall? Is he going to be able to do that from that distance? Probably not. Even, as the, even if I said, how about, six, how about 1,600 feet tall? Maybe then he could tell. But what if we put him in orbit? What if we put him on the moon? My point isn't God is so far away he can't see. My point is perspective. As much as Sean sitting here has a very different perspective than Sean sitting in his cockpit on what's going on in the world, us down here and God in his holiness have a very different perspective. So to us, all of our sins seem like these big or smaller. And to God, because he's so much bigger, so much more holy, so much more righteous, all of our sin levels out at some level. Does that make sense? It's almost like, okay... It's what we just read in Romans 3. We, we are all, that's why he says we're all sinners. Because in light of God's perfection, we're sitting here nickel and, and diming, is this sin bigger than this sin? And he's saying it's all sin. 
It's all rebellion. It's all against me. So what is he going to do? So that leaves us with, so either he lets everybody in, which none of us would be happy with. Not even, frankly, the, the agnostic. The guy that's just like, well, I think there is a God. I just don't know who he is. Even he would say, if there is a heaven, Hitler, Hitler shouldn't be there. And yet, or we say God is the one who needs to be the judge. Right? And we need to let him do his job. We need to let him be the, we need to leave the, the judgment to him. And our job, guys, listen, 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 listen. And we talk about this a lot in the training center already, and it's just going to get more. We need to not let our theology about God's judgment, even to the point of going, well, he does or doesn't judge, be informed or transformed by our feelings. I get that it does not feel good that God judges. That's why the church has taken that away. Like, that's why the church is no longer preaching God's judgment. It doesn't feel good. We would much rather have a God who loves us, like, no matter what, except for everything I just said, except for what the Bible says, right? And so we have to let our theology be transformed by what the Bible says. And the Bible says that the day of God's wrath is coming. That, the, that God has to. Jesus is the one who's gonna, guys, the, that loving Jesus, the one that everybody wants to make just like, it's a, he's all just love. And, that he's the one that's coming back with eyes aflame and a tongue like a sword. Why is he like that? Because he's gonna be judging. That Jesus, he is the instrument of grace and the instrument of justice. And God has to judge. But don't, guys, I'm telling you, it's so it's so much in us to go, I, I told, I, man, I preach it, brother. He's going to judge those people, and those people are going to hell. And, and we are all, all, all guilty of that, every one of us, just like that. Sometimes those people are the people living in our own home. <laughs> Sometimes those people are those people groups or those political parties or those whatever. Because all of it is, when we think that way, it's all sin. It is all sin. Look at your last talking points question. We're going to get ready to land this plane, believe it or not. I just wanted you to really understand because this idea of the wrath of God, remember we talked about the wrath of God in um, chapter 118, for the wrath of God is revealed, right? We t- we talked, we're talking about it here in chapter 2. It's going to come up again and again and again. And what we need to hear is God's right, righteous execution of his judgment, he is not up in heaven going, man, I cannot wait to pound those guys. He's not. The Lord is not slow as some count slowness, Peter tells us. But he is patient towards us. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to experience his wrath. And he wants all to come to repentance. That's his heart. But when it's all said and done, he has to judge. And either that wrath is going to be poured out on the one who took it for us, or it's going to get poured out on us. One of the two. So look at your last talking points question. Are you patient in well-doing? How about those you don't like? What does how you, what does how you answer these questions speak to, re, to the reality of whose glory you are seeking? So if you, if you remember back in, chapter, in verses 7 and 8, he's talking about this idea of those who are seeking, those who are patiently in well-doing, seeking glory and honor for God, 
are going to get eternal life. Those who are selfish and self-seeking are going to get wrath and fury. One of the ways we know if we're really getting grace, like we're really understanding grace, is how do we love people? Do you love people well? Like if, if you don't love people well, if you're not, I mean, we all struggle with forgiveness issues. We, we do. We all struggle in it. I'm not saying we're all, we're, we can't all walk around. We're not all Jesus. I am saying that if you're okay with being unforgiving, we need to talk. Like, I struggle with forgiveness issues big time. But I know I'm not supposed, I know I'm supposed to be forgiving. I just, and Paul, praise the Lord, is going to get to this whole thing in Romans 7 about the very thing I want to do, forgive, I can't seem to do. Right? And so I, I get the struggle. The question is, are you okay with it? Are you okay with going, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive and I don't care. That's not healthy as a Christian. And we need to talk about that. Because that one of the ways we know we're getting grace is by being patient, persevering, and well-doing. Because, because we want to seek the glory of the one who saved us. The one who's gracious, gracious to us. And that brings us to our last point. So we're hard-hearted rebels, we're glory thieves, and he knows the hidden intentions of our heart. So look at verse 12. He says, For all, have sin, who, all, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's just one, like over and over, guys, you hear this message from Paul. He is leveling the playing field, leveling the playing field, leveling the playing field. He's saying Jew, Greek, Gentile, nations, all the same. He's like, whether you have God's word or you don't have God's word, you're all judged because God is just that much bigger and better and more holy than us. And we should see that by what we, back to his first argument in chapter one, even by what is made. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And you say, again, you stop and go, there's that doing talk again. Except that remember this, just remember this idea, and I'm not going to belabor the point. Remember in Matthew 22, when the lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, the Pharisee says, hey, so what is the most important rule? And his answer is what? Here's the rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, hang all of the law and the prophets. He's saying, so, so, so when, when Paul, Paul knew that, so when he's saying you're a doer of the law, what you need to be thinking to yourself is, oh, am I keeping the Sabbath? And I'm gonna, No. You'd be asking, am I loving God and am I loving people? Right? That's, that's it. Are we doing that? I mean, there can be more than that in, in how you live, but there's certainly not less than that. We keep going. He says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. In other words, when they just worship God, like he talked about in chapter one, because maybe they've seen him by what was made, or they just are kind to one another, he says, um, by, he says that the law to them, that they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. He's like, they do good, even though they don't have the word in writing telling them what to do. Here's why that matters. Because what the gospel is, and you've heard me say this a lot, the gospel is not we do. Whether it was in our second point, all these, you go, you know, do the works of righteousness, do the, or here where he's talking about do the law, Paul is not talking about you do. Paul is talking about grab a hold of the truth that Jesus did. 
right? So he's saying like, like, when, like that's what the gospel is. At the same time, and this is the tension we live in as Christians, Jesus said things like Luke 4, 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Or how about those scary passages in Matthew 7? In those last days, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not do amazing things in your name? And, he will, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. Why? Why does he, why? Because Jesus is always after our hearts. And look at what he says here. Verse 15, they show, these, these that are doing the work, these, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Guys, understand what he's saying. He's saying the Holy Spirit is going to do what? What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit was going to do in John 16? Conv- I love that you guys know the word of God. He's going to convict the world according to what? Sin based on what? The word. That's what Paul's talking about. He's like, you're, he's like they, their conscience is pricked, just like yours and mine is. It's called grieving the Holy Spirit. When we, when we choose to step out of God's will, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. And that's Paul saying, like, and you know that. And on that day, and I love how he says this, according to my gospel. And he's like, I just, he's not, saying, he's not saying I made this up. He's saying I own this. Like, man, this is me. Like, me and the gospel are inseparable. He's like, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets, the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Guys, God wants your heart. Jesus pursues your heart, not your behavior. Our behavior is simply, an, and we're going to see why then he, why there is so much behavior stuff in this book. We're going to see that next week, because next week we're going to talk about, so what's with all the rules? If, 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 if. If God only wants my heart, what's with all the rules? Good question. Hang on to it. Come back next week because we're going to have a biblical answer for that because the Bible answers that question in the very next passage that we'll be in. But why does a loving God judge? That's the question we're asking today. I'm going to ask the music team to come up and we're going to go into our time of communion. We're going to have communion today as couples so they'll be scattered around the room. Um, If you need prayer, go to the back of the room and there'll be people that will pray for you um, in addition to communion if you would like to do that. Um, But as the music team comes up, the question we're asking is, why does a loving God judge? Here's the answer. We left him no choice. If you had to summarize it, like if I had to summarize the last 40 minutes into... Um, a sentence, it's because we've left him no choice. We are rebels. All of us. And either he just turns a blind eye to that, which by his very nature, he not only can, he can't, because he is righteous and holy and just, but he, we wouldn't want him to. We just want to tell him what things to turn a blind eye to. And Paul's saying, no. Ultimately, it's all God's decision. Why does he judge? Because he, we left him no choice. But guys, understand this. Here, and here's the part about that people think that Christians, and I'm not talking about how we behave. I'm talking about our theology is all about judgment. Here's what I've never understood. The same God who says, I have to judge is the one who came here, like literally, as a man, came here as an instrument, not just of appeasing that judgment. 
right? It's, it's the atonement that, the, that we're celebrating in communion. It's this idea that, that the same God who says, I have to judge your rebellion, immediately puts into place, actually before then, but a plan to pursue us in our rebellion. And then go, because I know you guys cannot possibly do this on your own, I'm going to come there and do it for you. Because you remember the scene in John chapter 8? It's that part of the, the, where they're not really sure it belongs in the Gospel of John where it was or whatever, so sometimes it's in parentheses. It's the scene of the woman caught in adultery. In other words, she was, she was intentionally put in a place where they could catch her and use her as an example. And, and they do the whole thing about, you know, he, he who without sin cast the first stone. And it's a great passage about judgment and their judgmental hearts. And we're all Pharisees. We all are stone casters, right? That's not why I bring it up. Do you remember what Jesus said? After everybody leaves, he stands up and he looks this precious woman in the face and he says, where are they? Where are all those condemning people? Isn't there anyone left that wants to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then he says this, and get the order he says this. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you see the order? He doesn't say, so, so stop your life of sin and I won't condemn you. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't condemn you. I came to die for you. Your condemnation is going to be placed upon me. I will take your condemnation for you. Now, in, in an overflow of the thanksgiving for that, Go and live your life for me. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for, I thank you for who you are in the sense that you are, specifically today, in the sense that you are righteous and just and holy. And that you have made us as your image bearers. And yet, and yet our rebellion, our pushing you away, has marred that image to the point that we cannot enter into your presence apart from something happening. That's what the gospel is. It's the something that happened. That because of that marred image that, that, that would be annihilated if it entered into the presence of a perfect and holy God, a perfect and holy God came here, made his dwelling among us, that he might go to a cross for us, that, that, that he might take our condemnation. That you would see fit to take the wrath, your righteous judgment, and place it upon your son. He who was without sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Lord, let, let that, the beauty of that truth just sink into our souls. As we come to your table, may we hear your words say, even as, even as right now I hear the enemy whispering, you're not worthy. 
are you to say you're a Christian? Who are you to take the Lord's cup? You put him on that tree. We did, Lord. I did. We did. Peter tells us that. He says, he says in himself he bore our sins in his body upon that tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he pulls forward, Peter pulls forward from Isaiah. 700 years earlier, he says, because by his wounds we are healed. So in the name of Jesus, I compel that liar's voice away from my head. I, I, Lord, I, I thank you for the light of the truth of the gospel. I thank you for the truth that we can come to your table because of the same reason that woman caught in adultery walked away unburdened. Because she had tasted of your grace. She has sensed your goodness. She had heard you say, I will take your condemnation. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who as an overflow of that amazing grace would love you and love people well. In Jesus' name.